2006, October 25th. Today is Lecture 24, Matter and Light, which will begin in just a moment. So we've been talking about light and matter this week, and it's now time to put these ideas together and talk about matter and light together. Because obviously, light, as I've said before, is a way to bridge the un otherwise unphysically unbridgeable distances between objects in space. We read the message of light. We saw some of the simple properties of light itself. We then talked about the properties of matter, atomic structure and, st and so forth. But now we'd like to talk about how matter interacts with light, because that's going to give us the other piece we need to learn how to read the message of light. So the key ideas today are to start what is really a two-part lecture. Today's lecture is dealing with basic interactions of matter and light, and tomorrow we'll explore that in more detail. But today I want to introduce, first of all, what we mean by temperature. We're going to introduce the Kelvin scale for temperature, which is a measurement of the internal energy content of matter. That turns out to be important because, after all, light carries energy. So we have to somehow relate the ability to emit or absorb light to what it does to the internal energy of a piece of matter. <coughs> We're then going to spend most of the lecture talking about Kirchhoff's laws of spectroscopy. These are empirical laws which were proposed in the 19th century by physicist Gustav Kirchhoff which can show that matter actually produces three distinctive kinds of spectra, depending upon what kind of matter we're talking about. And they are as follows. The first law is that a hot, dense object produces a continuous spectrum, meaning a continuous rainbow wash of color from the ultraviolet out through the infrared. And we often refer to this as a black body spectrum, as a particular case of this that's of interest to us here in this class. The second law is that a hot, low-density gas will produce an emission line spectrum, a spectrum where you see darkness and then a few bright lines of very specific, discrete colors. And finally, if I take a cool, dense gas and I look at a continuum source through that gas, it will produce an absorption line spectrum, where I see the continuous rainbow wash of color from the background continuous spectrum, but that spectrum is interrupted with dark lines where light has been removed or absorbed from the light passing through the cold, dense cloud. All of these together are forms of spectra that we're going to see at various places throughout the solar system and then later on in 162 throughout the universe. So we have to ask what, what they are today. Tomorrow we'll actually get into the details of the explanation of how spectroscopy actually works. So we're interested in the idea of, of the interaction between light and matter. Light falls on matter. Light can be emitted by matter. There are a number of ways in which we can view this interaction that's going to be important to us to learning something about both matter and light. The first and obvious way that matter can, can interact with, with light is matter can transmit light. Think about air or glass or water with light passing through it. There's some property of matter that allows light to pass through. X-rays, for example, can pass through your body even though visible light cannot. So there's some property of matter that lets some wavelengths through and not others. The other property is that matter can reflect light. We're all exploiting that in our everyday world. The primary sources of light we have are like the sun or maybe artificial lamps. And we see because of the light reflected off of those objects. So for example, you're looking at this projection screen here. You're seeing the light reflecting off of the specular screen. Now, there's two other ways in which matter can interact with light and vice versa that are a little bit more subtle, but actually quite important to us, especially what we'll talk about today. The first of these is that matter can actually gain energy by absorbing the light that hits it. Now, we all have this sensation, I've, I've said before, about holding your hand up to an incandescent light, and you can feel warmth. 
your hand is heating up in response to absorption of mostly infrared photons. The other thing that can happen is matter can actually lose energy by emitting light. Remember that light carries energy. So if light's carrying energy and I absorb light, I absorb that light's energy. I soak it all up. Similarly, if I'm emitting light, I'm losing energy by radiation. This is a less obvious thing, but of course, what we've got inside these incandescent lights up here in the room is a hot filament that's being heated up, and then as that hot element tries to cool into the surrounding cooler room, it does so by emitting photons, by emitting light, by emitting radiation. So we can transmit light, we can reflect light, but matter can also gain energy when it absorbs or lose energy when it emits light. And all of these together are going to give us the basic properties of the interaction between matter and light. But these last two I've highlighted because these bear on this question of the internal energy of the object. What do I mean by absorb energy or emit energy? What do I mean by heat up or cool down? I've already given you some hint as to how we're going to discuss internal energy. We discuss internal energy in terms of something called the temperature. So now we're going to find temperature. Temperature to us normally in everyday world is a sensation of hot or cold, and it's kind of a relative sensation. There's lots of ways your nerve endings that are sensitive to temperature can fool you into thinking something's hot or cold because of how it appears relative to its surroundings. But we can quantify temperature much more precisely as the energy content of an object, of a physical object made of matter. In solids, what I mean by internal energy content is a higher temperature of an object means, the higher temperature of a solid material means that there's a higher than average vibration energy per atom. If you could zoom in on a piece of solid matter with a microscope, you could probably see that it's, it's composed of molecules and atoms all held together and interacting with each other through their mutual electromagnetic fields. It kind of holds the material together. If you want to think in terms of a pure crystalline material where you can see like, like atoms in a little tinker toy lattice, that kind of helps. But that static picture of the atoms frozen in a lattice is wrong. If you really watched it, you would notice that all those atoms are jiggling and jugging next to each other. They're moving constantly and vibrating all the time. As the temperature goes up, the vibrations get faster. There's energy in the vibration. As the material cools down, the vibrations get smaller and smaller. So we can measure the internal energy by saying, are the atoms inside the solid material vibrating a lot? or are they vibrating a little tiny amount? A lot means it's going to be high temperature. A little means it's going to be low temperature. And that's how we define temperature in a mechanical way. In gases, what a higher temperature means there is that now we don't have the atoms all like put together in a little tinker toy lattice, but the atoms are all free, and they're bouncing off each other, and they're bouncing off the walls of the bottle or the room, bouncing off our forehead while the atoms smack into us. So we have free atoms. If I was to zoom in on this room with a microscope and look at the average speeds of all the little molecules of nitrogen and oxygen and water vapor and carbon dioxide running around in here, I would see them zipping around at various average speeds. Some a little slower, some a little faster, but there'd be some average speed they would have, and associated with that speed is a certain amount of kinetic energy, a certain amount of energy of motion. If I was to leave the room and then walk outside where it's decidedly much colder today, I would see that same mixture of gases, but the individual molecules would be moving much more slowly because they would have lower internal energy and therefore there's a lower temperature to the gas. So in a gas, high temperature means the individual atoms are moving very fast. 
Low temperature means the individual atoms are moving very slow. Liquids fall sort of in a funny zone between gases and solids, but it's the same sort of thing. Some of the uh, molecules and the liquids are bound together weakly, others are not, so you get a combination of both free motion and vibration in a liquid. In a solid, we talk about vibration. In a gas, we talk about the individual speeds of the individual free atoms or molecules that make up that material. And it's kind of a cartoon. If you were to zoom in with a microscope on a cool gas, on a hot gas, you would see that it, you know, the atoms are bouncing off each other, they're bouncing off the walls of the vessel. On the left-hand side, the little movie is, the little atoms are moving on average slower. Sometimes they speed up, sometimes they slow down, but they all hang out around kind of an average speed. In fact, if you plotted the distribution of atomic speeds, you would actually get something that looks very much like a grade bell curve, and there'd be an average temperature, the average speed that most of them are at. If I then turned up the temperature on the vessel of gas, I would see that bell curve shift over to higher speeds. There'd be a higher average speed. And so the same atoms are bouncing around. They're just whizzing around and going crazy here. So there's clearly a lot more energy here on the right, where the atoms are zipping around like mad, than over here on the left. And so I equate this as a cool temperature, where they're moving slow, and a hot temperature, where they're moving very fast. This is the so-called kinetic view of temperature. It's actually a way of defining temperature physically rather than simply temperature, which is a sensation of hot or cold. And since we can quantify it in terms of energy, this actually gives us a way of turning it into a numerical scale. Now, the, the way we're going to deal with this in terms of the internal energy is we're going to adopt what's called the Kelvin absolute temperature scale. It's an absolute temperature system that was developed by William Thompson, who was the first Lord Kelvin in the 19th century. There's a picture of Lord Thompson over there in the upper right. What Kelvin did was he used the Celsius temperature scale. He used the familiar temperature scale of zero degrees Celsius as freezing point of water, 100 degrees Celsius as the boiling point of pure water at regular standard temperature, regular, regular zero sea level pr air pressure. But he instead said, well, the zero point of the Celsius system was rather arbitrary because it was tied down to when pure water froze at, at, regular, at regular pressure. Instead, what he decided to do was to tie the temperature scale down to the internal motions of the material. Imagine as you turn the temperature down, the atoms will get slower and slower and slower. Eventually, they'll reach a point where you'll take all the energy out of the individual atoms, and they'll simple rat simply rattle and fall to the bottom of the jar. They'll stop moving. We call that minimum temperature. I, I obviously can't take any more temperature away from it because the atoms have stopped moving. There's no more energy to suck out of the system. I call that absolute zero. This is a, a theoretical point at which all motion would stop with any material. If I had a solid, all the little lattice vibrations between all the atoms would come to a halt, and it would freeze into a completely motionless lattice. In a gas, all the gas molecules and atoms just fall to the bottom of the, of the jar and just sit there. That's absolute zero. If you now say, how does this relate to this old Celsius scale? At around 273 degrees Kelvin, pure water will freeze. That defines zero degrees Celsius. For those of you who like exact numbers, it's really 273.15. But you know, that's just a detail. Water boils at 373 degrees Kelvin, which is equivalent to 100 degrees Celsius. So in using the Kelvin scale, we immediately have a large temperature for sort of everyday ranges. If you want a good number to keep at your fingertips, room temperature is around 300 degrees Kelvin, sort of a comfortable warm room 
has a typical temperature of about 27 degrees Celsius or about 300 degrees Kelvin. And we're going to use the absolute temperature scale. Why this has such an advantage? Why don't we use Fahrenheit and Celsius? And the answer is because we've tied it down to this absolute zero at the point that all motion stops. The temperature becomes directly proportional to the internal energy content. The problem with Celsius is Celsius has negative temperature. What do I mean by a negative temperature in the Celsius scale? Well, only that it's colder than the temperature needed to freeze water. There is no negative temperature in the Kelvin scale because I can't have negative energy. I can't suck more energy out of a system than it has to give up. So by tying it down as an absolute temperature scale, I can now speak more directly physically as to what's going on. So if I double the temperature in the Kelvin scale, I double the amount of internal energy. Whereas if I double the amount of energy and the amount of temperature in Celsius, it doesn't mean a whole lot. I have to then say, okay, but that's only relative to zero, which is freezing of water. It's not really double the energy. In fact, if I go from zero degrees Celsius water freezing to 100 degrees Celsius water boiling, that's only a change of 100 Kelvin out of 373. So you're not actually increasing the, temp the internal energy content by all that much. You're really only increasing the energy content by about half again as much to go from freezing to boiling. So the Celsius scale is really inconvenient to deal with. But in Kelvin, Kelvin is a straight proportionality, and that's why we're going to deal with it. So we'll always talk about temperatures for the most part in Kelvins because it gives you an immediate intuition about the relative energy content. But you can always convert it to more everyday Celsius. So we talk about atmospheric temperatures and things like that in the solar system. I'll flip back and forth between Celsius and, and Kelvins. And then I'll occasionally bring up Fahrenheit because I don't know about you, but I don't have a good deep intuition about uh, Celsius in terms of what the sensation of cold is. So I'll often just switch that in because we're all Americans and we're real wimps when it comes to measuring temperature. Just can't get away from our Fahrenheit system. All right, what is a spectrum? Well, we saw the other day that what a spectrum was in the ultramagnetic spectrum is simply the distribution of photon energies coming from a light source. It basically asks and then answers the question, how many photons of each energy am I getting emitted by a particular source? So if I wanted to take, for example, a spectrum of these incandescent lamps, which are lighting the stage here, I would say, what is the proportion of blue light, yellow light, green light, red light, and so forth throughout this spectrum? And I can draw a graph showing, yeah, they got kind of a reddish tinge to them. These things emit more red light than they emit blue light. Similarly, I could ask about the spectrum coming out of the projector here, which is now being filtered. And I'd say, yeah, the spectrum of the light here from this patch in the middle of the screen is emitting mostly blue light because I don't see any shades of red or green for the most part. How do you make a spectrum? How do I do that trick of measuring it? Well, one is just to look with the eye, but the eye is pretty crude at, at judging colors, as it turns out. So what we really want to do this is be a bit more quantitative about this. We use a device called a spectrograph. A spectrograph is basically just an optical device that takes white light in and breaks it up into its component colors. There's lots of ways you can do this. You can use a device called a prism, which is basically just a triangular piece of glass, and you exploit a property of light that, even though I told you the other day that light goes through exactly the same speed in a vacuum at all wavelengths and frequencies, that's not true in materials. In glasses, for example, blue light moves slower than red light and all the way in between. And so the amount that the light bends as it passes through glass is greater for blue light because it slows down more and less for red light. 
So I can use that property of dispersion, as it's called, to sort the light out. There's another class of devices known as diffraction gratings that use actually um, light wave interference as the way to sort out various energies. The degree to which light waves will interfere depends upon constructive or destructive interference depends upon the number of waves you've got, the frequency of the light. So I can play a game with that to get things to sort out. Tomorrow in class, we're going to do a demonstration where I'll hand out little diffraction gratings, which will achieve this sort of light sorting trick for us. So example is a prism. I send white light into a prism, and it breaks off into its component colors. And you expect that red light's going to bend less, yellow a little bit more, green at higher energy a bit more, blue even higher energy light a little bit more. And so since the amount of bending depends upon the energy, the higher energy light bends more, I get this effect of taking the white light and spreading it into this beautiful rainbow color of spectra, rainbow distribution of colors. If I measured the number of photons at each one of these intervals of color here, I would produce a spectral scan. I could tell you what proportions of blue light versus green light versus yellow light and versus red light, or even further, infrared, ultraviolet, gamma rays, x-rays, and so forth. So generically, a spectrum is simply sorting the light by its component <coughs> energies and saying how many photons are red, how many photons are green, and so forth. Now this is sort of a pretty picture, but we'll see both of these, both these sort of visual color uh, washes, as well as what we'll call spectral scans. We'll introduce one of those in just a moment here. Oh, that came out interesting. Okay, Kirchhoff's laws. If I take various types of objects and apply a spectrograph to them, what kind of spectra do I see? People did this a lot, starting with Isaac Newton and his work with the prism back in the, back in the, in the 18th century, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. And as time went on, people found that spectroscopy was actually a very good tool for measuring things, especially chemists. And one particular physicist, a German physicist named Gustav Kirchhoff, noticed that you really could divide the types of spectra that different types of material produced into three broad classes. And he wrote these down as three empirical laws. He didn't understand physically why there were these three types of spectra. He simply found that that was the three classes. The first law states that a hot solid or a hot dense gas will produce a continuous spectrum. So if I took a hot rod of steel or I took a hot pot of molten steel or I took a really hot dense ball of gas, oh, say like the sun, and I looked at it with a spectrograph, what I would see is a continuous rainbow wash of color. It's unbroken color from violet all the way up through red, from high energy to low energy. If, on the other hand, instead I had a jar containing a low-density gas, like hydrogen or neon or something like that, and I heat the gas up, either I put it in a flame, you know, one way to make a hot gas is to simply take a pure sample of, of a material, make it into a salt, put it on the end of a stick, and stick it in a candle or gas flame, like a Bunsen burner. Or I can put it into a glass tube, and I can smash electricity through it and heat it up that way. And then I pass the light that comes out of this thing, make it light up and glow, either in a flame or a discharge tube, look at the light through the spectrograph, and what I find is, instead of a continuous wash of color, I get darkness, but I get very, very bright lines only occurring at very specific, very discrete colors. Because of the way spectrographs work, it often gives the appearance of a line imposed upon darkness, and so we call this an emission line spectrum. Finally, I can set up an experiment where I take that same you know, bottle of gas and I let it get really cold, really thick, cold bottle of, a bottle of gas, and then I put a continuous light source behind it. 
So I take one of these continuous sources and I view it directly and I would see this beautiful continuous source according to the first law. But now I put between me and the source a, a jar full of this cold gas and what I find is that general rainbow wash of colors, but certain colors are missing. They've been absorbed or removed from the spectrum and I call these dark absorption lines. Again, the line here as I've drawn it is the sensation that you get when you look through a spectrograph or say take a photograph with this through a spectrograph or nowadays we use electronic cameras to, to record spectra. So there's three different kinds of spectra. A hot solid or hot dense gas or even a hot liquid will produce a continuous rainbow of color, a continuous spectrum. A hot low density gas with no continuous sources around will produce an emission line spectrum. And if I take a cold low density gas and view it, view a continuous source through it, I will see that that cold low density gas subtracts or absorbs light from the continuous spectrum of light passing through it and I call that an absorption line spectrum. Now we'll explore each of these things here in turn because each of these has implications for understanding physically what's going on. So the picture again, a continuous source, you view it directly. A good idea of a hot solid is a tungsten filament in an incandescent lamp. You heat it up to about three, four thousand degrees Kelvin and it produces this rainbow wash of color. If I look at that continuous source through a cloud of hydrogen gas, say, I would get the same continuous wash of color as I would see directly, but now I'm missing certain wavelengths, the absorption lines. And finally, if I viewed that hydrogen cloud and made it hot and viewed it from the side, what I would see is an emission line spectrum. I would see these very, very bright lines and darkness in between. So let's walk through each of these different types of spectra and describe where they come from. What is it that causes a continuous spectrum? Well, to understand a continuous spectrum, I need to understand something called a black body. The word black body was in fact coined by, by Kirchhoff. A black body is a very special kind of object. It's an object that absorbs all light. That's why it looks black to us, but it's completely black. It absorbs all of the photons that hit it. And it absorbs them at every single wavelength. So red light, blue light, green light, infrared, UV, it doesn't care. It'll absorb all of it. Now, since it's absorbing light, it's absorbing the energy of those photons. As it absorbs those energies, it's going to cause itself to heat up. It's going to increase the internal energy. If I've got a solid black body, all the atoms that make up the, the, the material in that are going to start vibrating like crazy as they begin to absorb energy from the light that hits it. So this means that I can characterize a black body by one number, its temperature. The temperature is a measurement of the internal energy that it has because it's been absorbing light. But that's only one side of the picture. Because if, an, if a black body absorbs all light, not only does it absorb light, it's hot, it's also going to turn out to be the perfect radiator. So if it's a perfect absorber, it's also going to have to have some way to get rid of that heat if it's immersed in a cooler medium. A black body is a perfect radiator, which means it emits at every single wavelength you can imagine. Infrared, ultraviolet, visible light, even tiny amounts of microwaves and radio and gamma rays if it's hot enough and it will emit them in a continuous spectrum. The energy that it emits is going to depend upon the amount of internal energy in the object. Not surprisingly, you're tapping the internal energy to make photons. So those photons that are created know something about the internal energy, and the internal energy is quantified in terms of the temperature of the object. Furthermore, the peak wavelength of light that I get out is also going to depend upon the temperature. It's somewhat intuitive. If the object is really, really hot, 
the atoms are moving really crazy, that means they're going to have enough energy to produce high energy photons, blue light. But as the object cools down, the atoms are moving more slowly, and they're only going to be able to emit low energy photons, or red light. So the effect of the temperature of the black body is going to do two things. The more temperature, the more total energy you've got, the more total energy you can emit, the brighter it will be. And the peak wavelength of that radiation that you emit is also going to depend upon whether you've got lots of high energy motions, high temperatures, or low energy motions, low temperatures, and therefore low frequency or red light. So both of these are the pieces of this. Now, we cannot make perfect black bodies in the laboratory, but we can get really, really close. Okay? People, rocks, uh, chunks of steel, they're kind of imperfect black bodies, but they're close enough to a first approximation. We just simply model them all as if they're black bodies and worry about the imperfections later. So in reality, I can't bring one into you, but I can get really close. There is only one perfect black body we've ever seen in the universe, and that turns out to be the universe itself at the very earliest times when it's hot and dense. Now, how do we quantify more specifically these impressions we get of brighter when it's hotter and redder or cooler when it's hotter or cooler? Well, the first of these is the Stefan Boltzmann law. It was discovered experimentally by Josef Stefan, who's shown over here on the left, and then explained theoretically by Ludwig Boltzmann, who was the father of modern statistics over there on the right. What the Stefan-Boltzmann law does is it relates the total amount of energy emitted per unit area from a black body to its internal temperature. It's a very simple formula. It says the amount of energy emitted per unit area is equal to a constant called the Stefan-Boltzmann the Stef constant, or Stefan's constant, <coughs> times the temperature to the fourth power. Sigma is Boltzmann's constant, excuse me. It was actually measured by Stefan. So the energy emitted per unit area is proportional to the temperature to the fourth power. In other words, hotter objects, higher temperature, are brighter at all wavelengths. And they're brighter as the temperature to the fourth power. Temperature measured in absolute Kelvin. So if I take an object which is 300 degrees Kelvin, it's going to have a certain brightness. E is equal to sigma, which is just a constant that makes the units come out right, times 300 Kelvin to the fourth power. I then crank up the heat on it and make it so it heats up to 600 degrees Kelvin. Let's say it's an iron, uh, iron cannonball, and I heat it up to just below the melting point of iron. So I heat it up to 600 degrees Kelvin. I double the temperature. Therefore, the total brightness of the cannonball will go from whatever it is at 300 Kelvin to 2 to the fourth power, or 16 times brighter. So as you heat an object up, it gets brighter very dramatically. It gets brighter as the fourth power, and it gets brighter at all wavelengths. If it's emitting blue light and green light and red light, it emits more of every wavelength. So the Stefan-Boltzmann law is very important to us. It tells us that the amount of light coming out of an object scales as the temperature, internal temperature to the fourth power in such a way that it gets hotter objects get brighter at all wavelengths like the fourth power of the temperature. There's another law that now relates, that relates the total amount of energy, the total spectral energy coming out. Now I want to ask a question about, am I getting mostly red light or blue light or maybe gamma rays or microwaves? How does the temperature of the body determine what particular colors come out? Well, this is actually related to something called Wien's Law. Wien's Law was developed by this guy named uh, 
Wilhelm Karl Werner Otto Fritz Franz Wien, known to all his friends as Willy, who determined that the peak of the, of the black body spectrum is going to be given by this formula. Basically, it's 2.9 million nanometers of wavelength divided by the temperature in Kelvin. That's not terribly enlightening. It says the peak wavelength, except that it says the peak wavelength is inversely proportional to temperature. In words, what this means is, as the temperature gets larger, the wavelength is going to get smaller because the wavelength of the peak is inversely proportional to temperature. So as objects get hotter, the temperature gets larger, the wavelength of the peak will shift to shorter wavelengths and therefore bluer. As the temperature begins to fall, as the object cools, you are now dividing this by a smaller number. That means the wavelength of the peak is getting longer and therefore the wavelength of the visible light coming out is redder. So in words, what Wien's law says is hotter objects are bluer and cooler objects are redder. So Stefan Boltzmann law tells us they get brighter as they get hotter and they get fainter as they get cooler. And the Wien's law tells us how that total spectrum shifts. It gets bluer as they get hotter, redder as they get cooler. Well, we could put these all together into a, into a single curve to show you what the wavelength, what the energies look like. Sorry, the amount of flux of photons emitted by a black body as a function of wavelength for different temperatures. Now, this curve is in your notes. I computed this the other day. This shows the spectrum that I would expect from a black body at 10,000 degrees Kelvin, 8,000 degrees Kelvin, and 6,000 degrees Kelvin. A typical incandescent light has a temperature between 2 and 4,000 degrees Kelvin, so it would peak out down here somewhere. Now, the first thing you can see is as I go from 6,000 to 8,000 to 10,000 degrees Kelvin, the Stefan-Boltzmann law predicts that, the, that it will get brighter at all wavelengths like the fourth power. So as I go from 6,000 up to 10,000, I'm, I'm not even a factor of two, and yet look at the total amount of light coming out. It's a dramatically huge increase as I go from 6 to 8 to 10,000 degrees. But also notice all three curves way out here in the infrared part of the spectrum is the 10,000 degree curve is still above the 8,000 degree curve is above the 6,000 degree curve. It gets brighter at all wavelengths. Now the other thing, this is the wavelength along the x-axis here. As I go from cooler to hotter, notice the peak of the spectrum moves to bluer wavelengths to shorter wavelengths. I've drawn the visible light spectrum boundaries here. 400 nanometers here is violet and 700 nanometers is kind of the limit of what the eye can see in the red. So as I go 6,000 degrees Kelvin, the peak light is here kind of in the blue-green part of the spectrum. At 8,000 degrees Kelvin, the peak spectrum is over here in the near ultraviolet. And at 10,000 degrees Kelvin, it's moved even further into the ultraviolet. But it's moved fairly gradually. It's a very simple linear relationship. As I increase the temperature, it moves more and more to the blue. If I looked at the 10,000 degree object, I see a lot more blue light than red light, so the sensation would be a relatively blue light source. In fact, this would be a blue star. At 8,000 degrees Kelvin, there's a lot more blue light than red light, but there's a little bit less of a mix, so there'd be a mix of red and blue, and so it'd kind of come out kind of whitish. And then finally, at 6,000 degrees Kelvin, the peak is here, I'm losing the blue, and I'm losing in the red, and so it might come out slightly yellowish. That's not an accident. The sun is 5,500 degrees Kelvin. That's why I chose 6,000 as my starting point. So this, this curve contains a lot of information. The first is the Stefan-Boltzmann law. As a black body gets hotter, it gets brighter at all wavelengths, like the fourth power. 
so very dramatic change in brightness, and then Wien's law that says that the peak of the spectrum of continuous light is inversely proportional to temperature. Hotter gets bluer, cooler gets redder. This is very important to us because it means by just looking at a hot solid object like a planet or a star and looking at the distribution of colors of light in a spectrum, I can read off its total power and its temperature. Even though I can't get anywhere near it to shove a thermometer into it. I can look at the spectrum of light because it's approximately a black body. I can measure the temperatures of things anywhere in the universe if they emit a black body spectrum or black body like spectrum. Okay, some simple examples. I've given this before, so we'll just go over these again. If I heat an iron bar from 300 to 600 degrees Kelvin, temperature increases by a factor of two. Therefore, the Stefan-Boltzmann law tells me it should get brighter as two to the fourth power, or 16 times brighter. The peak wavelength will also shift to the blue by a factor of two. If I punch in the numbers for 300 Kelvin, I find that a bar of, of steel at room temperature is emitting light. It doesn't look like a bar of steel is emitting light, but it is. It's emitting out, out at 10 microns in the infrared wavelength, which is way beyond what the eye can see. But if I brought in a thermal sensitive camera, I could actually see it. As I heat it up from 300 to 600, the peak of the radiation is at 5 microns, still out in the infrared. But remember, there's this long tail to the blue and red, and so I start to see the bar go from a dull red color up to a light yellow color as it heats up. Even though most of the light is way out invisible to us in the infrared, I still get a visible impression of it. Now, to summarize, if you heat any black body, it gets brighter at all wavelengths, including visible wavelengths, and the peak of the emission gets bluer in color. So as you heat up a bar of steel, it goes from virtually nothing at all to dull red to bright orange to bright yellow until you get it almost bright white hot when it's emitting light at nearly all wavelengths, and then you hit the melting point and it just sort of goos onto the table. Here's some other examples of black bodies. Take a person. It's a somewhat familiar looking person, I hope, there. Our body temperatures are about 310 degrees Kelvin, which if you put it into the Wien law, tells you the peak wavelength of emission is about 9,400 9, nanometers. The reddest light we can see is 700 nanometers, so it's like 9.4 microns out in the infrared. And if you work out through you know, typical surface area multiplied by temperature to the fourth power times sigma, you'll find that a typical human being emits about 100 watts of energy. 100 watts of total power. This is a picture of me, if you haven't guessed already, which was taken at, at two micron light. It's in actually a room with the lights on. Um, I'm wearing glasses. You can see the glasses are actually blocking and absorbing some of the infrared light from my skin. You can see I was wearing a sweater that had sort of open weave, so you can see the heat leaking through the, the weave there, and you can see it was a summer, uh, winter's day, and there's even a little heat leaking around through the hair. This is what we would look like. If I turned the lights out in here and brought in a thermal camera, what I'd see is a whole bunch of glowing 100-watt light bulbs in the infrared. That's why the room feels so warm in here. It's not just the air conditioning. You're also sitting there emitting like mad at 100 watts. The sun. The sun is a surface temperature of, more accurately, 5,770 degrees Kelvin. The peak wavelength from Wien's law is about 503 nanometers, which is right smack in the visible part of the spectrum. And it's somewhat exaggerated in this picture, but that makes the sun appear sort of a yellowish white. It emits because it's got a huge area times temperature to the fourth power is a big number. The total power output of the sun is something like something like four times ten to the twenty-six watts, compared to a hundred watts for a, for a human being at infrared. But 
both of these, even though they seem like completely disparate phenomena, a warm body and a hot star, the rules that describe what wavelengths they emit and the total power are exactly the same. Both behave to a first approximation like a black body. Now, what about the other types of spectra? Well, describing those is going to take a little bit more time, and that's really, we're going to go into the details tomorrow, but today I want to give the basic introduction. The second, Kirchhoff's second law says that a hot, low-density gas emits an emission line spectrum. If I drew a spectrum of, say, a hot gas, of a hot jar of hydrogen, what I'd see is darkness cut by very specific bright lines. Those bright lines, in fact, have names. A guy named Balmer gave them names, H-alpha, H-beta, and so forth. They're not terribly important to us here. But what's important is it only emits at those exact wavelengths, at those exact colors. No more, no less. Always that. So if I had a pure hydrogen sample, it would always look that way. We call these emission lines because of the way a spectrograph works. It looks like a line when I look through it with an eye or take a picture of it. Now, in between is darkness, unless you've got some leak, light leaking through your system. So this is what an emission line spectrum looks like from a hot, thin gas. The other thing that people came to conclusion of right away, especially chemists, was each chemical element has a unique spectral signature. Here's hydrogen. This was taken in a room where there's some continuous room lights on, so it was leaking through the spectrograph. Here's hydrogen, <coughs> helium, oxygen, neon, and iron. You can see each of them has a unique spectral signature. It's like a fingerprint. And chemists realized this right away. They would take samples of a, of, a, of a particular salt or something they precipitated out of some nasty compound, put it on a stick, stick it in a Bunsen burner, and then look at the sudden changes in color in the flame through a spectrograph. What you see for the continuous color in here, in fact, is the background room lights, but in a Bunsen burner, it would be the, the light from the flame and the stick burning. <laughs> Solid, hot, solid object emits a black body spectrum. But then different compounds would have different emission lines. And by looking at which emission lines appeared, chemists could actually assay what the compounds were in there. Oh, look, I blast this particular salt. There's bright lines of sodium and chlorine. It must be sodium chloride or something else like that. So this provided chemists with a way to type matter, to, to, to assay matter using spectroscopy. But they didn't understand how it worked. Absorption lines are the third one, light from a continuous spectrum, like in one of these room lights here, the, the nice incandescent lights. Passing through a vessel containing a cooler gas will produce a continuous spectrum. You'll see the background lamp, but crossing it will be these dark absorption lines. The wavelengths of the absorption lines exactly correspond to the wavelengths of the bright emission lines that you get if you heated that gas up and turned the light off. So therein lies a clue as to what is going on. The lines that the cold gas absorbs are the same lines that the hot gas would emit. That's telling you it's something that these lines are related to the atomic structure of the stuff that's making up the gas. So light is being absorbed by the individual atoms in the gas. They take on this individual spectral characteristic. They take on this spectral signature. So I get a continuous source. I look at it through a cloud. I get, if this is a cloud of hydrogen, these lines here are exactly the same lines that are absorbed out of hydrogen. Oops, so let's back up a bit. So here's, sorry. So if I take a cloud of hydrogen, cold hydrogen gas, I look at it through a light source. I first of all see the light, the lamp is a black body. It's emitting at all wavelengths. So I get this beautiful continuous wash of color. 
I then look at the cloud of this lamp through the cloud of hydrogen gas. I see that exact same wash of color from blue to red. There's no need to flutter the notebooks. We've got plenty of time here. Um, and I would see certain missing colors. If I then take that spectrum and line them up on a single page, there's my continuous spectrum in, my absorbed continuous spectrum with my absorption lines missing, and then if I lay down on the same page the same spectrum I would get from hot hydrogen gas, the red emission line of hydrogen exactly lines up with the, with the, the line absorbed in the cold gas, and so on and so forth for every single one of the lines. It's like a, a reverse of the emission line spectrum, and that sort of makes sense. Where do we see these things in nature? Well, here's a spectrum of the sun. The sun is a hot, dense ball of gas. So the first approximation, you say, oh, well, it's a black body. I just got through telling you it was a black body with a temperature of 5,770 Kelvin, emits so many watts, peaks at about 503 nanometers. But if I look really carefully with a very high-quality spectrograph, what I find is that first impression is slightly wrong. That, in fact, the continuous rainbow wash of color we think we see with a crude spectrograph is, in fact, crisscrossed by very, very dark lines throughout the spectrum. And some of these lines I might actually recognize from the spectra of objects on the Earth. For example, this is nicely a, a colorized version of it. You see up in the red here, there's a really deep, dark line up here in the red, and another one way down here, or is it uh, down here in the blue-green, and then other lines mixed in. This line and that line are lines of hydrogen. There are also lines of helium, these two lines here, this pair in the yellow, that's sodium, and so on and so forth. So by looking at the absorption lines that come through and identifying them with laboratory materials, I can actually tell you at a distance of 150 million kilometers that there's hydrogen, sodium. A lot of these lines that you see in here turn out to be iron. Um, there's a couple lines off the bottom here that are calcium. This triplet of lines right here I happen to know is magnesium and so on and so forth. I can chemically assay the sun without ever getting it anywhere near a test tube because I can read the message of the light by looking at what lines are being absorbed out. Now, why does this work? How does it work this way? How can, is it that hydrogen has its own spectrum, sodium, and so forth? The answer is, to jump ahead to tomorrow's lecture, is it will reflect the internal detailed structure of the atom. I can peer inside the atom using spectroscopy. Tomorrow we'll see how. It depends, ultimately, on the number of an arrangement of electrons in orbit around the nucleus. Relates back to those chemical properties we talked about yesterday. So going from the empirical observation of a spectrum to the elucidation of atomic structure is basically how we unlock the secrets of the atom. And that's the story we'll tell tomorrow. Oops. <laughs>